0: That psalm captures well what our text is preaching to us. Lamentations 3, if you would turn in your Bibles to Lamentations 3, we'll be reading verses 1 to 24. That can be found on page 873 of your Pew Bibles. A couple words about this and its division here. We are stopping at verse 24. There is a bit of a transition there, but mostly it's to divide this chapter into, into sections that we can actually cover in this service. And so I do want to draw us to draw our attention to the fact that it continues to, to progress in its argumentation and thought. We are just going to be looking at this section, but it does continue, and it's helpful for us to know that, that it is a bit of an artificial stop is what I'm trying to say. Before we read Lamentations 3, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, as we come before you, we come to read your word and a deep and important, a needed message for us, and that is of one in deep mourning and deep pain, one who is suffering and yet presents an example to all of us of how we undergo the pain of life, And Father, we see in this text a tremendous picture of you. One from a vantage point we don't often look, from the the depths of a dark pit. And it is from the vantage point of deep grief where often that light shines brightest. Where often we can see your heart in a way we would never have known and that is what we see in this chapter, and we pray that we would know it and see that the truth isn't just what happened to your people so long ago, but that your great steadfast love to, towards your suffering people is not just seen in a punishment, an exile, or even a return from exile to the land of Israel, but it is rather the love of your dear Son, your love that you've portrayed in and through Him to us, your people, how he has come to redeem us from the depths of suffering, from the depths of lament. There is truly one answer to grief, and it is Jesus Christ. We ask this in your great name. Amen. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace." I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's as far as we'll read from this chapter in Lamentations. People of God, the longer I serve as your pastor, the more this message of Lamentations means means personally to me, and I see it means more to you as well. As a pastor, you're called and privileged to go through times of great joy with your congregants and those you pastor as well as times of great pain, and it's in those times that that message becomes all the more needed and real and why you appreciate why it's in God's Word. Lamentations and a message becomes all that more applicable at a graveside when a family is clutching each other in tears as they are laying their loved one to rest. It becomes all that more meaningful when someone is in the hospital and you go up to their bedside to ask them, are they ready to see their Savior while their family is in the back holding each other and crying to the loss of their dear one? And when you have conversations with brothers and sisters who are in such tremendous physical pain and agony where every day is a trial and they just want it to end, For those who are broken by a, a problem in marriage, a divorce, a loss of a loved one and spouse, not just through death but through abandonment. And how, and, and how do we respond? How do we, re, how do we turn that to prayer? enter Lamentations. And what the message is there, you see the heartfelt cry of the Lord's prophet in this chapter. And we see that this is the center of Lamentations. There's many things that are meant to highlight this very chapter and this message in the flow of the grief of the people. You'll notice that chapters 1 and 2 and also chapter 4 begins with the word, how, it's a it's a statement of grief and lament and it begins each of those poems and yet this does not begin that way chapter 3 begins I am the man who has seen affliction. You see it's it's centered personally now on this man on the prophet and yes he will at times take up the role as representing all people but he's really describing as well his own personal experience and what he has felt and why this is especially helpful to us is if this is truly the prophet's prayer, this isn't the heartfelt cry of the sinful Lady Zion. It is the heartfelt cry of a faithful prophet being caught up in the grief and destruction of the people, being struck by the Lord, being part of their, their punishment for sin and, and what he responds with in this prayer. Lament is more than just an expression of grief. We may experience many griefs and they may not need to be associated with a lament, but often lament is the point where we bring ourselves where we have we have confusion, utter confusion as what is going on. We have doubts about God that creep in and we question why he has called us to endure this and and look how the prophets speak so plainly of what he's enduring at God's hand. The chapter begins with this, this He. It's this He who's afflicting them. Who is this He? Who is the one who has hunted him, has shot him with arrows, has walled him up? Who's the one to do this? It's the Lord. That's how He describes it. What we see then here is when God brings you to places of lamentations, that does not automatically mean your faith is weak. Think Job. Think Christ, and think the prophet of Lamentations 3. Lady Zion has set her lament in chapters 1 and 2, and now it's as if the prophet says, it's my turn, she's spoken, hear from me. I am the man of affliction. I am the man of sorrows. And as I phrase it that way, I hope as we go through, Jesus would never be far from your thoughts. As we read of a man of affliction struck, by the the punishment of God. And here this personal cry of the prophet begins. And so our first point, the man of affliction, in verses 1 to 18. In verses 1 to 18. Chapter 3 as a whole isn't longer than chapters 1 and 2. You'll see in content they're the same, but it is 66 verses as opposed to 22 verses as are the other chapters in Lamentations. Why is that? It's because the structure of Lamentations is designed to present this chapter as its centerpiece. The acrostic, that Hebrew poetic form of going through the Hebrew alphabet, beginning each verse with the next letter of the alphabet, is ramped up to new levels here. Whereas before in Lamentations, each verse consisting of several lines began with the one letter of the alphabet and then would continue on after that. Here, every line of the verse begins with that letter And so that's why it's divided in our Bibles the way it is. There's 66 verses representing that fact. This poetic form then is reaching its highest point, centering this chapter. It's sort of like arrows directing us to this purpose. Not to say chapters 1 and 2 were unimportant. No, they were leading us to this point. And we see in these verses that grief and that sorrow by the prophet, perhaps Jeremiah himself, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. This first 18 verses is like something of a fever nightmare. It's just jumping from one horrible fate to another. Look at this. In the first three verses, he's pursued by God's hands into darkness. In verses 4 through 6, it jumps to scenes of starvation and famine. In verses 7 through 9, it jumps to scenes of blockade, of being trapped in an unending maze, or what many have seen is quite literally a reference to the way Assyrians used to punish people, where they would take one, stand them up, and wall them in, block them in so close, where they would die a claustrophobic death. And the prophet is saying, this is what the Lord has done to me And he's making his appeal, but he says it's as if the appeal can't even break from this coffin of stones that the Lord has made. And can your heart and lament not understand the same with what you're going through in times of your grief and trouble when it feels as if your prayers don't go any further than the ceiling of your house? And you're left with that nagging question and thought, that feeling, has the Lord abandoned me? Does he even care? That's lamentations. That's the questions, the doubts. That's what the prophet's wrestling with. It's chilling then when we see, as I already said, who is the one doing this? It's God. Look even verses 10 through 12. It describes God as a bear or lion who's hunting and stalking the prophet himself jumping out at him to maul him and devour him. And then it shifts into the imagery that God's either a hunter or a warrior who's shooting arrows with him. And the targets on the prophet's own back, or more specifically into his own kidneys and guts, did the arrows of the Lord sink deep. And the culmination of this sadness is in verses 16 to 18. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. I bet that can describe your heart if you are going through a particular trial right now. You don't even remember what it's like to be happy and to live in joy. I've forgotten it, is what the prophet says. What does it mean to be at peace? And so I say my endurance has perished he can't stand any longer. He can't uphold it. And so he says, So has my hope from the Lord. And with that bell, that ominous bell that struck, you've reached the low point of Lamentations as the prophet says that the Lord himself, you'll notice in your Bibles the, the capitalization of the Lord. This is the term covenant term Yahweh. You'll also notice that that name is not used in this poem up until this point verses 1 through 18, it's all this mysterious he who's doing it, and now he uses the covenant name of the Lord, the one that's meant to inspire the faithfulness and love of God, and instead it's in a statement that he has lost all hope in him. And yet even as that bell rings, the prophet continues to lead us, because that's not the end of the book, nor is it the end of his poem. It was a way in which he was describing the way he has felt and what he's experienced. But now he turns his own statements as a piece of instruction for all God's people. This is where you turn in grief. So we could say it this way. Lamentations 1 verse 1 to chapter 3 verse 18 is allowing us to breathe our pain to God. But just as we should not allow in ourselves or in others a continuing, continuously wallowing in pain, there's a direction. Lamentations has a goal, and it's this. You know, you don't just gather and, and just talk about how bad everything is. You do this to vent to the Lord that he would care about you, that you're putting before him your pain, that you could express that to him with the thought and hope that he does care you. But it's meant to lead us to something else, to statements of truth and hope. You can't climb out of a pit unless you place your feet in solid footholds. And you'll never place your foot in a solid foothold, something that can bear your weight to help you climb out of it, if all you do is lament. And that's also the point of lamentations. The lament is not in and of itself an end goal. The goal is the Lord and where you're brought. And so at the very point where we've reached the lowest exclamation of what the prophet has gone through, it all of a sudden changes. And we see in our second point that there's glimmers of hope now based in the character of God. Glimmers of hope based in the character of God. You see, we needed to go through verses 1 to 18 so that we could properly understand what's being done here. Without a shadow of a doubt, Lamentations 3 and particularly verses 22 through 24 are the most well-known part of the book. And in fact, that's probably the only verses anyone really knows or cares to know in this book. But if you just rip that from its context, you don't understand the tremendous victory that's being gained here by the prophet of God. You see, he's not uttering these statements of God's character from sunshine and roses, from vacation on a beach and all as well, and he's saying, great is your faithfulness, God. He is one who has arrows stuck in his gut. He's covered in soot. He's famished and starving, mauled. That's the way he feels. And from cracked lips of suffering comes this statement of faith. See how that highlights all the more, the meaning and the great victory being won here? We haven't come to statements of hope in Lamentations yet. In the sermons we have, we've been looking forward to what was coming, but just the verses alone, there's been no hope there. But now there is. There's glimmers. Sometimes God squeezes us to the point that we finally whisper our confession. But let me tell you, a confession never is more sweet or more meaningful than when it's spoken through those cracked lips of a saint who has nothing left and knows it. Of a saint who turns to the Lord when everything else has been taken away. That's why the center of Lamentations is a gorgeous gem. Highlighted in a setting, you know rings have a gem and it's placed in a setting, and the setting of this gem is all mourning and pain, but it's that that highlights this gem and makes it all the more beautiful, and makes it shine all the more great. This glimmer changes in verse nineteen and and it starts out small. See this? he says, "Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood. the gall, my soul continues, remembers, and is bowed down within me. That's what he's saying. Why is there a glimmer of hope even there? Because now he's turned what was a description of the pain into a prayer, and he says, remember my affliction. Who is he addressing? The covenant Lord, who he has just said, has called him to endure this. But you, that Lord who struck me, remember my affliction. So the plea starts that little little flickering candle in the darkness, and, and there's hope. You see, the question would naturally have been, hasn't the covenant been destroyed? Hasn't the first three and a half chapters of Lamentations shown us there's no more relationship with God? And that's not the case. The prophet's proving that here, even in his plea, and we see that in places like Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10, where there are statements about a return from exile, a promise of restoration after rebellion of God's people, and the prophet is performing this himself. The penalty, you see, that the Lord has called the people to go through is part of his covenant faithfulness. Really? That, that's, that's the case? Yeah the penalty that he struck the people with is a mark of his covenant faithfulness. He said he would do that. All in a way to bring them back. You see, truly, he hasn't utterly abandoned the people. He hasn't utterly abandoned the prophet. And the prophet knows it well. And so what does he do? He doesn't reject God, even as he has spoken truly the way he has felt Rather, he turns to this God and speak the truth he knows but feels like he hasn't experienced. He's he's making a decision here, and it's a decision we need to know too, that the first steps of faith spoken in grief aren't the ones that are being spawned from feelings. You can't just wait. You can't just wait until you feel like saying the statements of faith. First come acts of faith, then comes feelings. First comes a response of faith, a, a standing on what you know to be true, and everything else follows suit. Verse 21 But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That verse is a breath of fresh air in lamentations. Again, like I said, it's finally we've reached a hope. And he even says, He has hope. Because he's called this to mind. What has he called to mind? What gives him hope? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. That's the hope a sufferer needs to know. And that's the hope you need to call to your mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Verse twenty-three: They are new every morning. When you're going through going through suffering or grief, the next day is terrifying. You think you gotta go through it all over again. You think I have to endure yet again the terrors of this day, the anxieties, the panic, the fear, the pain. But what does he say? That the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Every morning when you awake, the mercies of the Lord are there as well. You have to call it to mind because otherwise you just feel verses 1 to 18. Great is your faithfulness. That spawned the famous hymn, Without knowing it, we think that hymn would come out of some psalm or something that was just just a wonderful situation. But great is your faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, comes from this portion of a saint heavily afflicted and suffering and in pain. Which means you know what he's saying is true. He has dealt with the depths of despair, and this is what he calls to mind. This is what he knows to be true verse 24 the lord is my portion says my soul therefore i will hope in him notice again the the wrestling of faith here he does not say my heart spills forth with feelings of satisfaction and so i will hope in god no He just knows the Lord is his portion, covenantal language. He knows that the Lord still is with him. He knows that the Lord has him and cares for him. He knows that the Lord has greater purposes for him and his people than this. And so he will hope. Therefore, I will place my hope in him. People of God, we need to lament, but not without purpose or goal. And that's so often what we do. So often we approach suffering, and our suffering is just that, and we're just sitting there waiting for it to pass. It's not what Lamentations would have us do. Lamentations would say, you go bring your heart to the Lord, but you go fix your gaze on him who is better than it. Put your faith to the test, really. Act on your faith. Will you say such statements when you don't feel like it? It's hard to do. I've experienced this in my life, I know many of you have, where to just state the truth is so hard. To bring your your mouth to open and say, I trust in the Lord's faithfulness, it feels bitter in your mouth because... Because all the feelings and all the emotions and everything you're going through would say otherwise, and and your, your faith has to stand alone. It has to stand separate from your experiences, but rather showing that your faith is in God himself and not on what God has given you. And not on how much God has blessed you, but on him alone. You actually have to force the words to be uttered, but that's not an empty practice. That's the glimmer of hope. Because what Lamentations is saying is when you are that far down in the grave, where there is no light, even as you force yourself to state the truth, to speak God's word to your heart, even in that grave there is that candle flickering that tells you even here in death's dark veil, God is present and he cares. And then that praise spills from his mouth. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, never comes to an end. Keep this truth firmly fixed before your eyes. Our thoughts will wander and go astray until we fully see that God alone is sufficient for us. Strip everything away and what do you have? Is God enough? And he had brought his people away from everything else, which was his goal. The people had other gods. They had other pursuits and desires, and he strips it all away. And what is left? The only thing that matters is God's sufficiency. If you're not satisfied with God alone, you will be impatient in any trial you face. And if you're not seeking to be satisfied in God alone, you will be called to endure these things so that you do. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? I'm persuaded that neither famine, nor nakedness, nor sword, nor death, nor life can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ. He's sufficient. He's our portion. And that statement of faith from Lamentations 3 is filled out by Christ himself. Look at his sufficiency. Look at his care. Look at who's descend lower in the grave than us. Look who's carried us out of the grave. It's Christ. Look at the character of God in your lament. Because what you find is that God is good. Calvin says, "...the faithful ought so to fix their minds on God alone." That whatever might happen, they would not yet cease to glory in Him. Sort of like Jonah, in a sense, hears praise coming from the grave, from, from death itself, from pain, and it's glory in God. Why? Because God is their life in death, their light in darkness, their rest in war and in tumult, their abundance in extreme poverty and want. We are brought to the place where we must state the truth before God and place our eyes on Him. And it's an incredible act of faith. You see, there is that glimmer of light, and that light is this the steadfast love of God remains true even in these depths, and it remains true for me. For you sitting there, it's personal. I haven't walked through all the trials that you have walked, and no one has, right? We all have walked our own trials. We all have walked our own sufferings. But what this passage tells us and what we know is true is that in your suffering, let your faith lead you to the character of God, that he is greater than the sorrow. And though we may have to wrestle ourselves into exhaustion to the very point where we can finally utter such faith, that is the battle. It's well worth wrestling with yourself to get get to that point. Look at all the things we see in these verses of, of God. You see his steadfast love and mercy. You see that he's compassionate. You see, mercy is a statement of an attribute of God. This is describing in general who he is. But the flip side or the side to that coin, personally expressed, is compassion. Mercy is who God is. Compassion is when it's expressed to his people, personally given to his people. You see in verse 23, God is faithful. What is faithful? It means trustworthy and utterly reliable. God is enough in verse 24. He satisfies us. He's sufficient. If we have the Lord, we have enough. Verse 25, we didn't read that, but it continues that the Lord is good. That's what this sufferer is saying. The Lord is good. That's the sad part. So many times in the midst of our grief, a saint won't reach the point in the middle of it to say God is good. But that's what the prophet's example is. And then in verse 26, God is Savior. See that he is Savior. Brothers and sisters, we might affirm that God is steadfast, that he's merciful and compassionate and faithful, but often takes a trial for us to actually put our weight upon such a profession and to see it and believe it. Part of the fabric of a trial is that we will question God and his care, but part of the use and nature of who God is is to use such trials to bring us into greater faith and understanding of who he is. I'm guessing that for each of us, I I say this knowing my own heart, one of the desires that we have often becomes an idol, and that idol or that desire is that we would be happy you even see the, him express that in verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace, I've forgotten what happiness is. See, our, our desire is to be happy, our desires to be at peace, and that in and of itself is not wrong, but what often happens is, is our comfort, our peace, our desire becomes so much of an idol to us that we want that more than God. And God is just a means to that end that we could just be happy and so we'll serve him as long as he doesn't take our happiness away and God shows himself to be a loving father to take it away so that we see what's best in this world and what we need most. What is the the greatest God, the only God to serve is not happiness, but God himself. I'll do that. I'm guessing you do too in trials where you sort of have a bit of a cynical... Stoic view of God You kind of get to the point where you just You've almost overtold yourself That this life is suffering and cross bearing To the point that you don't expect That God would even want you to be happy We can kind of have that cynical view of God That, that he doesn't really want us to, to even express feelings there That he's not going to call us to joy He's just going to call us to pain, right? Isn't that what verses 1-18 through 18 are saying? That's not an adequate or true picture of who God is and his heart to, t- to his people. It's not that he would just afflict us, and we actually construct a false image of God when we think that, that God would just have us in pain, and that we just got to accept it. Here's what I mean. I, I think this psalm and this verse would express what Lamentations is trying to say, and though it's just one verse, I would have us all turn there. Psalm 90, verse 14. Psalm 90, verse 14. This psalm is very similar in some of its words to Lamentations. Earlier in it, it talks about the span of life and and, and what they will reach and that they're in toil and, and grief, and, and it's expressing this lament and affliction by God. But then look at verse 14. This is the prayer of the psalmist. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Does that sound like a picture of a God who would just have his people suffer? Or does that sound in the request of that psalmist like God would actually have his people look at the verse, be satisfied That they would rejoice. That they would be glad all their days. That's the heart of God. Now notice what it's in, and and we see that in verse 14 of Psalm 90. We see that here in our text. What are we satisfied in? The character of God. And what, specifically, the steadfast love of God. Satisfy us in the morning with the steadfast love of God that we might have gratitude all our days, that we might rejoice. You see, God's call for you to suffer is not that you just experience pain and a sort of heartless of a father figure who's too hard on his kids that you just learn obedience, that you would learn who he is and learn his heart. And how he would satisfy us and be with us. 2 Corinthians 1 is another place that describes for us what God is doing in the midst of trial. 1 Corinthians 1, 3 and following says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. How would God be known in trials? One who can satisfy us, one who comforts his people. And the prophet of Lamentations is proving just that. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Great is your goodness might take sorrow to show us how good God is, but we can see it. Turn your attention to it. This prophet is a man of affliction, but he has a goal in mind, and he's being led by God, and and so there's no other greater fulfillment than Christ in that. No better fulfillment than he who reached the point where he wanted a burden taken away, where he was filled with poison, wormwood, and gall had been stuffed into him. The arrows of the Father stuck deep in his gut, and he, just like the prophet here, seemed to be without any hope, utterly forsaken of God, and yet he placed his hope in the Lord. And what was squeezed from the faith of our Savior, a distilled and pure statement of faith, not my will but yours be done. See, Jesus exemplifies even what the prophet was doing so many years before towards the people. Call this to mind, and you will have hope in your hopeless situation that God is good. Psalm 34, verse 8 tells us to taste and see that God is good. That's what Lamentations is doing. And it's, it's a bit of a command. It's a, it's a bit of a, a it's prodding on. Go taste and see that God is good. Pray to the Lord, Lord, let me taste of your goodness. Understanding what you mean there, you're, you're trying to taste of who he is, of his steadfast love, of his goodness, of his care of who he is in Christ, so clearly displayed to us, of what has happened for us. That is what you're trying to taste of, and that's why it's unaffected by the circumstances and why the prophet can say this in the midst of a completely horrible existence. That God is good. If you're anything like me, you'll also reach this point in times of trial. You'll say, I can't, I can't come to God again and ask to taste of his goodness. I, it's just every day, every moment of the day, I'm asking that. And you almost feel like, like God's going to get annoyed with it. He's going to get annoyed with me coming yet again as a broken, as a broken person, as someone who needs him and, and says, Lord, I don't have the strength. I need to taste of your goodness. I need to see that you are good. The truth is, brothers and sisters, God never grows weary of having his people come to taste of him, to see that he's good. And so, we can say with the prophet that God does not grow weary of having his people come to him because he's faithful, because his mercies never end, because they are new every morning. His faithfulness is great, and so we can, in the midst of our suffering, say, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see a picture of the gospel here as it's given years before Christ came, and yet which anticipated and revealed what would happen in Christ, that we are to fix ourselves, to fix our gaze upon your faithfulness and your steadfast love that is trustworthy and true upon your compassion and your mercy, and that we are called at times to to say such statements of faith beyond what our experiences can tell us, or at least what we feel. And Father, we pray that for all of us here, especially those enduring currently times of grief and pain, that they would learn this lesson, and indeed that we all would that we are to fix our gaze on your character and on your goodness, that we are to taste and see who you are and never be in want and truly be satisfied, truly rejoice, truly be happy all the days of our life with a happiness that isn't an idol, but a response to our heartfelt love to, you, to who you are. This is our prayer, Lord, and though beyond us, it is certainly within your power to grant We ask this in your great name. Amen.